What's up, guys? This is the first ever Brandon Adams podcast. I'm super flattered to have as my guest, James Blake. Uh, James is a longtime friend of mine, and I have about a million questions that he's never heard from me, so we're going to get right into it. Okay, so first off, you played high school tennis. I never knew this about you. Okay, why did you play high school tennis, and how did that go? Uh, well, as you can imagine, I, it, it went pretty well I won I won most of my matches but um I did it because I had a ton of fun um the guys on my team were fun when I was a freshman my brother was a senior so I still had someone good to practice with and I just got along great with the coach he was a nice guy he was one of science teachers he wasn't much of a tennis coach but he was a good friend I was uh I would still see him today if I if I went back to Fairfield he's a, he's a great guy so I just had a good time hanging with the team and they didn't exactly enforce all the rules on me. I didn't have to be at practice every day. I would, I would usually go and practice on my own with, uh, with other guys at my tennis club instead of being with the high school players. But um, I played all the matches. I had a great time. And um, it was fun. You know, the band rides with the team were some of my most fun memories of high school. And you did lose a match or two? I did. I lost to my Harvard teammate. The last match I lost was uh, my sophomore year, the finals of the state. I lost to Mike Passarelli who I ended up playing uh, college tennis with at Harvard. He was a senior when I was a sophomore, and he beat me. My coach still claims that because we are such good friends, I let him win, but I have to set the record straight for anyone that's heard him tell that. It's not true. He was better than me then. He was much bigger and stronger, and he just beat me. Got it. Got it. So 18 and unders, what was your ranking? What was your final ranking in the 18s? Um, my last year, I was number one. Uh, my first year in the 18s, I think I was number 25. Got it. So then you follow your brother to Harvard. Pretty much immediate success. I take it from the acknowledgments of your book where you thank all of your resident block that you had a very good time at Harvard. Is this true? Yeah, I had a great time. I'm really lucky. I followed uh, my brother Thomas there. Um, we had a fun time um, together for one year. And then I played another year before turning pro. And I loved the team. I had a great time. And being that he was already there three years, you know, he's three years older than me, I knew a lot of his friends. I knew a lot of the football team already. I knew all the tennis players. So um, it kind of, I kind of came in already having a group of friends, which is, as most people know, when they go off to college, that's part of the, the scary part of getting there is, uh, are, am I going to meet people? Who am I going to be friends with? And I already had that group built in. So I was pretty lucky. So then your second year was sort of a legendary year in college tennis. Now, in the book, you note that you really put your head down and started working with a strength coach all year, and you were quite focused. Second I kind of made a decision. Yeah, I kind of made a decision before the second year because people were asking me if I was going to turn pro, what was I going to do? They thought there was a chance for me to turn pro even before that. And so I kind of wanted to make the decision then based on that second year, which was I'm going to really put my head down on and work really hard see how good I can be this year and if I get to a point where I don't feel like college is college tennis is pushing me anymore um, and I need to go to the next level um, I'll do that and if not uh, I've, I wasn't going to go three years to college I was either going to go two or all four and so if I went that two and if things didn't go well 
I was planning on going my next two years and graduating and then seeing how I did on the pro tour, but things went well. I won a futures event um, on my Christmas break uh, from Harvard and I did pretty well. I finished the year number one in the country. I think I won two of the college grand slam. So I was, um, I felt like it was time at that point. So that was the thing that was quite distinctive about your year. You won a futures. Now to put that in perspective, there would be other people in the top 10 college players that might not win or even around, right? Or yeah. that, that kind of set, uh, that set my mind at ease. That made me feel like, all right, it is the right time because I'm going to these futures. And um, my brother at Oregon Turn Pro, he was playing that future. And there's a lot of guys that I respected that were playing those futures and none of them were necessarily winning them that easily. And I went out there and uh, as you know, at Harvard, that means you still have finals at the end of Christmas break. So I was still getting ready for finals and playing that future. And for me to go in there and win it, um, it made me feel like, okay, when I really, really focus on this, there is a chance for me. I can possibly do this. It's going to take a lot of work, but I can hopefully be successful on this level. Now, the one letdown that year was you lost to Jeff Morrison in the NCAA finals, who is, was an acquaintance of mine that whole year uh, down at the university of Florida. So, you finished the year number one. It didn't matter, but did that loss sting a little bit or not really? It definitely stung. Cause, uh, so I had almost the exact same story. The finals of NCAAs and the finals of uh, Kalamazoo, the juniors nationals, was I was playing in the junior national finals and the guy, Rudy Raquet, started cramping. And I kind of let up a little bit and he just was going for broke and he won. He got the wild card into the U.S. Open. Then I was playing Jeff Morrison and it was a hot day in Georgia. We had a really close match. He had had a match point on me earlier in the year. We had close matches all the time. Um, and it was 5-6, me serving to stay in the third set. Um, and he started cramping and just going for broke again. And he goes for broke and wins, uh, wins that game, and that's it. So it was definitely a match where um, either one of us could have won. If it goes to a tiebreaker and he's starting to cramp, I like my chances. But um, he played great. He played an unbelievable game. I got a little – probably a little nervous because he started cramping and I maybe played a little too tentative and he took advantage. So that was, uh, that, that stung a little cause it was such a good year that I wanted to close it out and, and win the, win the title. But I, I think I got him. I think I got my revenge. I got him a few times on the tour. So, uh, those, those are the, those are the matches I try to remember, but it would have been nice to have that NCAA title, especially to bring it to Harvard that, uh, a school that doesn't have a ton of, uh, modern day NCAA titles. Now I remember the story from back in the day, and this is literally going from, from 20 plus years ago that quite soon after the match, you, you signed a contract for, a couple million dollars. Now that figure might not be exactly right, but it pretty much made up your mind as to what you were going to do. Well, I had made up my mind um, pretty much by the time I got to NCAAs. I knew that I was turning pro. Um, I hadn't told anyone except my immediate family that that was pretty much a, a done deal. And then, but I could not um, discuss that with agents at that time because of the rules. So I remember that before that match and even right after, so the story, I'm sure that's exaggerated. It wasn't right after the match, but I, I didn't know. I honestly had no idea if my first contract was going to be for $5,000 or $5 million because I had never been a part of like the pro scene or, or known a lot of pros to ask them questions about what to expect. Um, and you're not allowed to hear that from agents until you actually sign on the dotted line. So 
probably the next thing that happened was I signed with an agent, Carlos Fleming, who's still my agent at IMG. Um, so I signed with him and then pretty quickly he started, uh, shopping around and doing deals and, you know, talking to Adidas and Nike and Reebok and all the, the major players in tennis. And, um, I signed a deal with Nike. It definitely wasn't right after I still remember, um, signing it and I was already back home in Connecticut. So it couldn't have been that day or even the next week as I went back to Harvard for a few more days. So it was probably a week later that I signed my first deal with Nike and that was for, yeah, it was in the, in the seven figures. So I was, um, I was pretty excited, you know, to be the, you know, 19 years old and, uh, turning pro and have a seven figure deal from Nike. I was, uh, definitely riding high at that point, but, uh, pretty quickly the pro tour humbled me. And I was, uh, I had a rough year, year and a half before I, uh, before I started kind of breaking through. So that made, uh, all the, all the free Nike clothes not seem as, uh, as special when I was getting my butt kicked. Yeah. So in the book, you paint the first year and a half as humbling. Um, but by the same token, if you if you look at the history of NCAA champions, most don't crack the top 100 on a sustained basis. And you're pretty much right there at the end of the first 18 months on tour. So I'm, maybe... Maybe your expectations were very, but you were, you were, you were solidly on tour, right? Like, yeah, well, I was, I was a solid challenger player, I'd say, um, for about a year and a half. I don't think I won a tour event match. I won one tour event match against Mal Washington when he was hurt. His knee was pretty bad. But until then, until after that, I didn't win another tour event match probably for over a year. So it didn't feel like I was a part of that main tour. It felt like I was, I could succeed on the challenger tour. I was winning a few rounds there. I don't think I'd won a title until about a year and a half in. Um, but I was having some success there. I was pretty comfortably getting the second round quarters, semis. Um, but I didn't feel like I was ready for that main tour yet. And, um, it took a little bit more strengthening, getting bigger, stronger. Um, and then just experience. I, my, my back end was at the start, it was definitely getting picked on. And the guys were big enough, strong enough um, to really pick on it. Where in college, I felt like I was able to get forehands anytime I wanted to get forehands and I was able to be effective that way. But I needed to shore up my back end to make it so that it couldn't be picked on the way it was for that first year, year and a half. The NCAA finals is 1999. Is that correct? Yeah. Basically three years later, you beat Agassi in the semis and win the title in DC. And you're that saying 2003, 2003. I, I think I won that one. Right. Okay. Or was that 2002? I was, I was thinking 2002 on that one. It might've been 2002. You're right. Uh, yes, it was 2002 because then in the, in 2003, I lost in the semis. Yeah. So 2002 was my kind of breakthrough there at, uh, at DC. Yeah. But it was, so I still remember it was, uh 99 so that whole rest of the year was kind of a struggle all of 2000 and then 2001 was when i started having success towards uh the end of that summer i, I did well i won a couple matches at cincinnati um and then the u.s open i played well i won a match the first time i won a match was 2001 there and then i lost to leighton hewitt in the second round uh, in five sets and he went on to win the title so i was encouraged by that had a great fall played davis cup the 2002 things are really starting to happen. So I felt like at that point, 2001 was kind of the halfway through the year. I started feeling like I belonged on tour. 
and then 2002 was my first real like full season of feeling like all right I belong here and I ended up I think I ended up that year around 20 or 30 in the world so that's when I definitely shot up and felt like I was I, I belonged there. Winning the title beating Agassi in the semis that was more than belonging there right like you, <laughs> yeah that was like that you was feel I mean, you, that was an you, you have the sense of what what ultimately transpired like a top five player you feel like that's yeah. all of a sudden in the realm of possibility yeah I mean and it's so fun that time when you're on the rise and going up and sort of the sky's the limit you don't know how far you're going to go but to beat one of the idols uh one of your idols one of the legends of the game Andre Agassi and just go out there with nothing to lose and win that match and then uh sort of consolidate that and and finish it off winning in the finals I played Paradorn Shishikban um that was just a great week I I was so happy played really well and um yeah had tons of confidence and uh, it did feel like okay now I don't just belong out here I'm not just kind of um, a journeyman here I can I can beat the top players uh on a given day of course it's gonna take more consistency to get up to that level full time but um I'm here where guys in the top 10 can't just look past me um which was a good feeling because I knew I had some firepower I had the ability to to cause problems for anyone, even even top ten in the world players, making me think if I keep keep my head down, keep working hard, there's a chance I could get to that level too. And then 2013 is sort of a consolidation of 2012, where you're you're right there, top 25 player, pretty much the whole year. A, a series of basically a solid year where it's quarters and rounds of 16 in the biggest tournaments all year. Yeah, 2003. Yeah, 2003 was that was uh. Yeah, that was a solid year, but I also felt like I, I, I almost felt like I took a little step back. I had what, what I would consider a little bit of a sophomore slump where I didn't have the big results because I think I actually was playing a little too passive. I got up to, I don't remember exactly, 20-something in the world and felt, um, felt like, okay, now if I just play well, I'm going to beat these guys that are ranked below me that are 40 and 50 and 60 in the world. And I got beat by a lot of those guys because I, I started thinking – too far ahead that I just had to play okay instead of that same hunger I had to to go up to that level that 20 in the world level um and I started dropping a little bit and um it was frustrating but I, I feel like a lot of players when they get that first taste of success instead of continuing to push forward they they get a little complacent especially when you've got a little break uh in there at the end of 2002 you've got the off season and it's time to think about it and okay now I want to protect what I have instead of thinking about pushing forward so that was my learning curve a little bit in 2003. And in 2004, I was ready to, to really make a jump and go right back to being as, as hungry as I could be, win titles, get uh, play aggressive, be fearless out there again. And then, of course, I got injured and sick. So that was, um, that was unfortunate because that's when I did feel like I was ready to make a lot of progress. And I just want to take you to the end of 2003 quickly. The U.S. Open, which, is, which became – the signature tournament for you, you get to you get to third round that year. You lose to Fed in a close match. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, just to put it in context, basically, you you bridge the generations between Agassi Sampras, where Sampras is a little bit too old for you. You you never play him. Yeah. And then Fed Joko Nadal, and Joko. Yeah. He's a little young for you, Nadal. Yep. You don't play him for the first time until he's already a, a Grand Slam champion. 
Yeah. Um, At 19 years old. <laughs> yeah. Um, but your record against Nadal, you're three and four. Yeah. You beat him the only time you played him in a Grand Slam. Yeah. You beat him at the tour finals. Yeah. You basically have have a, a even record against him, whereas Fed shows up over and over again in the history as as yeah. just your nemesis. And yeah, very frustrating. So, what's it like that when you play Fed at the U.S. Open the first time you? You play him on the so the big first team. time I played him there, I was I felt like I was playing well. It was the night match. I love those night matches. And, you know, at that point, he wasn't the Fed we all know, the multiple Grand Slam champion, greatest of all time, possibly. Um, so I felt like I had a chance because he made a few more errors back then. But that match, he played so well that I really didn't feel like I did much or anything wrong. Um, and I was just amazed. Like, this guy is so good. Because I felt like the way I was playing, I could beat most guys on tour, or I could at least be in it, take him to five sets, be close. Um, and that day, he just he had another gear. And then I was shocked that he goes out in the next round, or uh, maybe two rounds later, he loses to Nalbandian. Nalbandian's an unbelievable talent, but the way Roger played that match against me, I was like, this guy, he's playing better, in my opinion, in 2003 than when I lost to Leighton in 2001, and he ended up winning the title. I thought Roger was playing better than that, and he was going to go on to the title. Little I know, I mean, Nalbandian had a great record against him. He played really well against him. But, um, yeah, that was a tough a tough match because I felt like he came up, like you said, he came up in my draws way too often, and he was the one guy that I struggled the most to play against and is Roger um, because I felt like he did everything I did, um, only a little bit better. Uh, my forehand was what, the way I attacked and, and won points, and his forehand seemed to be just as good. He played defense with his backhand well, but he played it a little better. He moved as well as me, and he served quite a bit better than me. Um, so, And he volleyed better than me. So he did all the things that I did well. It seemed like he did even better. So it was just such a struggle for me to find uh, my strength to his weakness or, or find a, a game plan to play against someone like myself. And did he rush you a bit more than Nadal? Is that why you found more success with Nadal? Yeah, I mean, against Nadal, I felt like it was – uh, partly because by the time I played him, he was a Grand Slam champion, so I didn't have anything to lose. Um, I actually loved playing against him because he does give you time, and I have to be aggressive to beat him. I have to take his time away, so I was stepping inside the court. Anytime he was hitting a ball that was just spinning instead of hitting through the court, I tried to take it and be aggressive. That time when I played him first at the U.S. Open, he was still in the phase of serving probably 85 to 90 percent just to his other player's weakness to, to my so that was to my back end so he was serving 90 percent of the time to my back end I was able to eventually just start sitting on that and he didn't think I was going to be aggressive with the back end because it's not really my style you could just kind of get the point started but I started getting into a rhythm getting into a groove being aggressive on my back end still and just taking more and more time away from him pushing him further and further back behind the baseline which on clay he's comfortable but on hard courts I was able to finish points then uh, on him when he was moving that far behind the baseline so I liked playing him um, I felt like it, it made me have a very simple game plan of just you know see that short ball be aggressive go after it because you have to you're not going to get into these long extended rallies where he's looping his forehand to my backhand if I got into if I hit three backhands in a row I felt like I, I absolutely have to change something whether it's be super kamikaze try to get a forehand or slice one down the line just to break up the rhythm and get him hitting a backhand because I couldn't let him do what he does to so many one-handers to me, just 
looping that forehand up to my backhand and eventually me giving him a short ball and him taking advantage. Yeah, and the the weakness that you said you worked on in, in 2005 was uh, high balls to the backhand, and that's sort of what he yeah. would, would be known to, to do. So you you just actively avoid that pattern and and just look for, for forehands, and you were able to finish the point against him. Yeah, yeah, because I mean he's he's such a great mover. He plays defense so well. When I'm playing like, when I'm playing like that, um, I feel like I'm the one that's dictating. I'm I'm the one that's either winning the point or losing the point. And when I'm doing that, I feel good against guys like Roger. I don't always feel that way because I feel like he takes it away from me. He takes some of the time away from me. He rushes me. His serve is so good that it puts me on the defense right away. Rafa gave me the opportunity to be the one that was ending points. So I don't remember the stats on that match. I don't, I'm sure I could pull them up somewhere, but I guarantee I had way more winners and way more errors than he did in that match because I'm the one that's, that's taking the chances to end the points. And that's the way I feel good. If I'm, if I'm the one doing that, I know it's on me. And if I play well, then I can win that match. If I play poorly, I'm going to lose. But if I play safe, I know to me, I'm going to lose that nine times out of 10. I'm not going to beat a player like Rafa Nadal playing safe. I just don't have the, I don't have that skill set. I know a lot of people like to criticize me or thought that I should play a lot safer at times, but if they realize that that's just skill set, I'm not going to win those matches. I'm never going to win the matches that I won on tour by playing safe. Sure. No, that makes absolute sense to me. Now, when you mentioned fed, you, you wouldn't give him the edge in the movement category you you obviously rate your your movement very high and and having played with you i can i can say that you 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 move you never look like you're in a hurry but you're very very fast so where did that where did that come from um well i don't know i'd say probably both my parents want to take credit for that my dad was a very fast guy around the court and my mom um likes to uh still tell stories about all the the record she set in the 100-yard dash and long jump when she was in uh, in grade school. So they both want to take credit for my track skills. But um, I, I, honestly, I, part of it's genetics, but I worked my tail off on those too. I, I remember practicing at Saddlebrook and training and everything. I did agility drills, sprints. I did those just about every single day. And I knew that, especially right when I came on tour and I needed to get as many forehands as I could, there's no way I watched. I, I used to love watching Carlos Moya, who I ended up playing a lot on tour because I saw how much he had to protect his backhand and how much he used his huge forehand uh, to win points. And I watched that and I realized how much he had to move to do that and how great his footwork had to be to do that. So I thought about the fact that, hey, if I'm going to do that, if, if my backhand just my skill set isn't my backhand isn't uh, going to be Nalbandian, my backhand isn't Rafa's or Djokovic's, my backhand is always going to be have, have to be kind of protected. I need to have footwork to be able to do that. So I remember doing tons and tons of drills on footwork and agility and everything. And um, yeah, it's, you know, it's part genetics and part a lot, a lot of work. Yeah. I need to do some of that work because I always look like I'm in a big hurry and I move really slow and you always look like you're not at all in a hurry and you move really well, fast. So I don't understand what that. What is that Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hours? I mean, I, I definitely put in my, my 10,000 hours on the court. So 2004, Yeah. this was the, the, a signature year in in a very bad way, incredibly bad luck and incredible challenges over the course of the year. Yeah. The starting point of the story really is in Rome, you're practicing with Robert Ginepri and you 
uh, slide for a drop shot. Maybe the court is slightly out of order. You hit, you hit the line in such a way where you lose your balance, stumble into the net post, and po- nearly become paralyzed, but break your neck when this happens yeah and uh funny enough that was actually the best thing that happened to me that year i um I still remember it vividly and I, I just saw robbie last week and we talked about it so that was uh uh we had a, a fun laugh over it now because we're, we're lucky i guess i turned my head at the last second i didn't just stumble into it i basically supermaned into the uh, into the net post and um as i did i turned my head at the last second and hit it on my neck and um it fractured a, a vertebrae of my neck and it was, they said with the force it took to actually fracture that vertebrae from hitting it where I hit it, that if I hit on the top of my head, I, I certainly would have been paralyzed and never walked again. So I know how lucky I was at that point. And then um, coming home, I flew home probably two days later from Rome and uh, in the big brace, wheelchair and everything, didn't, couldn't move at all on the plane pretty much. I sat in the first, first seat, first row, didn't eat or drink anything for fear of having to get up and go to the bathroom. So made it home and, um, that was the last six weeks of my dad's life. So that was, um, like I said, the best thing that happened to me was, was hurting myself because I came home and my dad wouldn't have told me to come home. He wouldn't have let me come home probably because he knew that that was a, an important time for me. Those next few weeks were my opportunity to qualify for the Olympics um, that year in 2004. And uh, I, I would have much rather been home than, uh, than qualifying for the Olympics. So I was home with my dad um, and he passed away July 3rd. So I was, um, I was around and got to spend um, that bit of time with my dad and say a lot of the things that we had left unsaid before that. So I was, um, really happy. I mean, a little bit of physical pain I can, I can handle. And, um, amazingly breaking my neck physically didn't do that much damage, uh, overall to my career. I was able to probably be back on the court in two months after, after breaking my neck. So that was, uh, in the grand scheme of things, that's not, uh, not that bad. Uh, it's just, it was just that I was an inch away from it being, Life-changing. And then uh, a month later, you contract shingles. A month after you're back on court, you contract shingles, a particularly bad case that sidelines you for five or six months. Yeah, that was a, that was a much scarier uh, even probably than breaking my neck. That was, it was my wake-up call to what uh, psychological stress can do to you physically because it was about uh, five or six days after my dad passed away. And um, I, the whole left side of my face was paralyzed. So I called the, um, the ear, nose, and throat guy that I'd gone to the day before because I had a pounding headache. It was like my head was in a vice. And luckily he gave me his phone number. I called him. I said, hey, I can't move the left side of my face. And he said, get to the emergency room right now. I'll meet you there. I got there. And um, it turned out that I had shingles and it affected my, um, my facial nerve. And so they had to uh, pump a bunch of antibiotics into me right away to, to stop the swelling because it was swelling inside my face um, and that could have killed the nerve uh, eventually so it affected my sight my hearing my balance my taste everything and so um, but the doctors couldn't tell if I was going to be that if it was going to heal if the nerve had actually died and if it died there's an experimental procedure that they could have possibly done um, it maybe would have worked, but they said there's a chance I would never have a normal face again and it would affect everything. So it took about a month before they could even tell there was any progress. So for that month in the, the gray area of not knowing whether I'd ever play tennis again, that was really scary. But um, I do remember going to the hospital and them asking, well, you know, what could this be from and whatever? And there's, you know, it's possibly stress. And I just almost kind of laughed. I said, yeah, that's, 
that's a good uh, that's a good indicator then because my dad you know my dad was I was so close with him that to have him pass away I hadn't slept probably in four or five days so that was clearly what did it um, the stress of, of that situation and um, it's given me a you know a different outlook at times sometimes my wife jokes about that um, whether I would win the lottery or break my leg I think my my voice wouldn't change an octave it just stays kind of very monotone I try to keep things in perspective and um, I think it came from that because that that amount of stress clearly uh, affected me physically to the point where I almost lost my entire career and could have changed my life that way but um, it gave me a, a chance I mean again I think things happen for a reason and I was around my family and friends for that six months eight months and it gave me a little bit of a, a window into what they were doing and being a part of their lives and it made me just a happier person overall um, for the rest of my life because I thought of how many people were in my life that didn't care if I ever won another tennis match that just were there to bring me a bowl of soup or take me out or, or you know, tell, tell me, Hey, I need to, we need to go to the bar next door and just have a beer just to get you out of the house and, and keep me happy and smiling. And those are, those are the friends I'm still close to. That was the, most of the people that were in the J block uh, that, that next year when they came back and were screaming crazy for me, because those are my true friends. And they were kind of mean, right? They did make fun of you for having half your face paralyzed. Yes. One of my best friends in the whole world walked into the hospital room and he looked at me and said, Hey, can you smile? And I gave the half smile and he nearly fell on the floor laughing. And I've told that story to my wife and she does not understand it. My mom couldn't believe it, but I don't know. That's just the way we are. That's the way uh, that some of our guys are is we're, um, we're, we're a little cruel, but we know, we, I mean, we always know we love each other, so it's not a big deal. And I know I look ridiculous, and um, he was going to, I mean, it made me smile. When he's laughing, I was laughing, and there was nothing else I could do about it. I couldn't, I couldn't cry about it then, and there was nothing to, nothing to change, so might as well laugh. And, uh, yeah, I mean, those are, those are the people that are still the closest to me because they're going to they're gonna tell me how it is. If I look stupid, if I, got a, if I got a ridiculous outfit on, they're going to tell me it's a ridiculous outfit. They're not going to let me go out and make a fool of myself in front of everyone else. I'll just make a fool and, of myself in front of my close friends. Yeah, and they were they were a bit jealous from the days of the of uh, People magazine cover Sexiest Man Alive, <laughs> so they had to. They had I don't to know about that. They, they they made fun of plenty of that too. <laughs> so then, tennis wise, the recovery comes in mid two thousand five, and it comes sort of in fast and furious fashion. So. So the early part of 2005 is a little bit of a struggle, but you have sort of a psychological breakthrough in Australia where you lose a match to Hewitt, but you lose it in a way where you realize, okay, I'm not where I was, but I'm, I'm going to get back. Yeah, that was an interesting match because I, um, I played him and he, he popped up in a few key moments in my career too. And he's a guy that you know what you're getting, you know how good he is, you know how talented he is, and you know how just rock solid he is. So you're going to have to beat him. If you're going to, if you're going to win a match, you got to, you got to play well to beat him that day. So um, going into that match, um, I played well at times and I could feel the fact that, okay, I'm back, uh, you know, for a set here, but then it went away and then I'm back and it went away. And I realized, okay, I'm not where I was. I'm nowhere near the consistency level that I was set that I played great. There was those, you know, three or four games in a row where I was back and feeling like I was, I was back to where I was. So I said, okay, I'm not back um, to where I was, but those flashes gave me hope saying, okay, I can do this again. I can get back. It's going to take some hard work. It's going to take um, a little bit of time, but I'm going to get back. I definitely was still um, under the effects of my nerve damage. Um, because I could tell, luckily there it was bright, but from there we went to the indoors in San Jose and Memphis, and 
when there wasn't a lot of light, I could tell that my eye was still affected. Um, I wasn't seeing the ball quite as clearly. So I knew I was still not 100%, but I felt like, okay, when I do get back to 100%, it's still there. There is still that ability. There is still um, the hunger inside me. So it's going to take some time and some hard work. But I, I felt I never feel good after a loss, but I felt like there was plenty to work on after that Hewitt match for sure. So then around the middle of the year, well, in May, you you want points because your ranking is not where you believe it should be. So you drop down to the Challenger. You win two events in quick succession on the Challenger Tour. And that leads the way to a huge summer, basically. Yeah, Yeah, and it was interesting to go back to the Challengers. I played one in um, Tunica, Mississippi, which was very interesting. Um, It was not easy to find a a healthy meal (laughs) around there. Um, but played in Tunica and then played at Forest Hills, New York, which was great because I was close to where I grew up. Um, so won those both and beat some pretty good players, in my opinion, uh, on the way there. So I was, I was happy about the way I was playing. It wasn't exactly a walk in the park. And then went to the French Open, qualified for the French Open, won a round and lost to San Juarinca, which, as most people know now, is not a bad loss on clay. And I lost in five sets. It was an absolute battle. We were both bent physically. It was a great match. So um, nothing to hang my head about there. And then went on the grass was a little up and down. I didn't have a great grass season, but then once I got back onto the hard court, uh, things started clicking. I started playing much better. Um, and it, I think that was all it took was it, it was going to take a couple of big wins or a couple of, um, couple of moments where I felt like, okay, now I am back. I'm, I'm not a challenger player anymore. I'm not a qualifying player anymore. I'm back to where I was and I can feel consistent. I can do this week in and week out. And I think I made the finals in D.C. I, and I won New Haven and then I, I obviously did well at the U.S. Open. So that was when I felt like, okay, I am, uh, I'm, playing, uh, I'm playing as well as I was before I was injured. And now I can hopefully keep getting even better and see, how, see the progress I thought I was going to make in 2004. See if I can start making that now. And um, it started going well, yeah. So at, after that U.S. Open, you're top 10. No, not after the 2005 one. I was. Oh, after 2006, you're top 10. I'm sorry. So 2006, I was. Yeah. 2005, you beat Nadal in the second round. Beat Nadal. That's when I lost to Andre in the quarters, yeah. And this was one of the few matches where you you, you felt some strong regrets because this was, this was one of the most famous night matches in the history of the U.S. Open. You were up yeah. two sets and a break. Uh, and you you lost seven six in the third what eleven nine or or ten eight yeah it was a battle and I mean I was up two sets to love he adjusted um, I was playing super aggressive it was it was taking time away from him which he's usually able to take time away from his opponents um, and then you know it's amazing you you get a little passive for one game against Andre someone like that that can that can hurt you that's got the weapons that he has. And he turns it around and he gets momentum and he's aggressive. And now he's putting you on your back foot. And he does that for the third and fourth sets. And then the fifth set goes back and forth. I'm up a break. I'm feeling good. I'm serving for the match. And he's got some of the best returns in the game. And he plays a game where his back's up against the wall. And that's why he's one of the great champions. He ends up winning that. The tiebreaker, you know, you can talk about regrets, but I played that tiebreaker as well as I could. The only one I remember specifically was six all. Um, I had a, he, we had an absolute battle rallies back and forth, both ripping the cover off the ball and he hits a drop shot. I come in and 
I could do it all over again. I, I think I, a lot of times I think when I'm playing it a little safe, I'm just going to take it down the line, just push it deep down the line, make them come up with a passing shot. And um, thinking back to it, that's, I mean, his backhand is rock solid. It's so good that I, I feel like I should have gone cross court on that and made him, made him come up with a passing shot on his forehand. But I hit it. I hit a good shot deep to his backhand, but he just hit a better shot past me on that. And, um, you know, that was, uh, that was about it. Then he took a second serve return and planted on the baseline and, that was the end. I mean, I, uh, that, that tiebreaker, I haven't gone back and watched it, but from what I remember was played at an extremely high level. And, um, so it was fun to be a part of, I wish I had won those last two points, but, um, it was fun to be a part of, and it would have been an opportunity then to play my, my friend, Robbie Ginepri in the semifinal, his only semifinal ever. And would have been my, uh, semi, my first semifinal would have been, uh, would have been a lot of fun to be a part of, but, wasn't to be. Andre, uh, Andre deserved it that night. But your mindset is in a very good place at this time, and you, you look at the loss and you say, the one thing I could improve is my, is my serve, my second serve, and you yeah. go to work on your serve. Yeah, I mean, I, there is, there's always things you can work on, but that was the one that, um, that cost me a little bit in that match because when I was serving for the match, um, he was able to really attack my second serve um and, and be aggressive on it and that that was uh that was difficult but he was one of the best in the world at returning so there wasn't that much I could do but I did feel like okay now I'm back I'm, I beat someone I beat Rob who's two in the world I beat Tommy Robredo who's top 10 in the world I believe I beat um I, I was within two points of beating Andre uh, and getting to the semis and so I was I was creeping back up to around 20 or 30 in the world at that point after winning New Haven and finals in DC so I felt like, okay, now the way I'm playing, I'm playing as if I'm top 10 or 15 in the world. It's just going to take um, time to get through, to, to continue playing this way, um, for me to get ranked where I felt like now I belong. I belong. Um, I didn't know if I could get to top 10, but I felt like the way I was playing, I had the ability to get up there. So then in 2006, you're going from sort of consistently quarterfinals round of 16 to to – feeling like you're making the finals in the biggest tournaments, having good shots to win the biggest tournaments. Um, so the, you cracked the top 10 for the first time. Was it in Indian Wells or U.S. Open that year? Indian Wells. Igor Andreev was the, the win I needed to, to crack into the top 10. and um, So I beat him in Indian Wells. I think that was around a 16 and then kept going and ended up making the finals. So I cracked beat the top the 10. Beat Nadal in the semis again in a huge spot. The yeah, beat Nadal in the semis. I think I beat Haas maybe in the quarters and then um, played Roger in the finals. And again, I was playing great and he uh, he had another gear. <laughs> but now you're in the top 10 U.S. Open quarterfinals this year. Again, who's your opponent? Roger, that was a killer. That was a year. Uh, so 06, I think actually um, Tennis Magazine uh, picked me to win the U.S. Open that year. So the way I was playing, I had won Indianapolis. I was playing great. I was in the top 10. And the way I was playing, I actually felt like, you know what, I can beat anyone. I just beat Andy Roddick, who was a top opponent for me for most of, most of my career. I beat him in the finals of Indianapolis. And I was just – I don't normally look way ahead in a draw. I'll maybe look to the next round to see who I might play in the next round. But this time, coming into uh, the U.S. Open in 06, I was – I don't know what I was seeded, but I was in that four through eight seed uh, or five through eight seed. So I could play any of the top four in the quarters. And all I was thinking was just anyone but Fed in the quarters. Just please have me not play Fed in the quarters because I had ne obviously I'd never been at that point to the semis. And the way I was playing, I felt like I could beat just about anyone in the world. Um, 
I just didn't want to play Roger. And of course it's Roger in the quarter. So we both get to the quarters and that was the first time I took a set off of him, I think. And I remember in the fourth set, it was close. I had a break point to get back on serve and um, didn't, didn't capitalize, but it was a really close match. And that was, I was playing as well as I could have. And I, I still think at that point I would have beaten, um, in my opinion, I was playing well enough to beat anyone in the world except for Roger. And after that match, you're in the top five. Uh, I don't remember specifically, but probably around that. Ah, uh, I don't know. I might have been, but I know I finished the year in the top five because I was. I went into the Masters Cup at eight, and then making the finals. We were so close because Roger had so many points that year that the rest of us were kind of clumped together. So four through eight was really close, and so for me, going from eight to four was uh, making the finals of the Masters Cup. So I finished the year four. And there, you beat Nadal again. And lose to Fed in the finals. Yeah, and that was interesting because that was uh, – so I played Rafa in the, the round robin, and then in the semis I beat Nalbandian, and that was one of the only tournaments where it was possible for Roger and Rafa since they were one and two in the world, depending on how they finished in their group. They got to play in the semis. And Roger, obviously, at that time had a not-so-great record against Rafa. Rafa had been somewhat dominant over him at that point. And so I'm playing the winner in the finals, and – I have a great, at that point, I have a 3-0 and record against Rafa. I have an 0 in whatever lifetime record against Roger. And, of course, Roger beats Rafa that time. And then we go, we play in the finals. And, and Roger, I'm playing great. And Roger just crushes me. It's to the point where his coach at the time, uh, he was with Tony Roach, comes into the locker room and says, look, I'm sorry. That's as good as I've ever seen him back in. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, great time for it. Great time for him to play so well against me. But, yeah, that was, uh, that was interesting because that was um, – it would have been – I wonder what would have happened if I had played Rafa. I loved playing him. I had just beaten him probably four days earlier, so I would have liked my chances to, to possibly win that uh, win that whole title. Yeah, the – Roger, I, I guess in a way it's not surprising. Like, who are you going to play in the finals? It's going to be Roger at that time. But it just got to be ridiculous. I mean, then, then Cincy the next year, you play Roger again in the finals. Any Masters final I made, I played Roger in the final. And 2006, 7, 8, it's – it's just solid top 10 the whole way. Since he, you're, you're lose to Fed in the final, you're still top 10, uh, 2008, top 10, and again, Aussie quarterfinals, Fed. Uh, and um, then 2000. So 2009, 2010, at what stage do you draw the line and you say, okay, I'm starting to feel like late career? You had knee troubles 2011, 2011, 2012. Where do you, where do you say, okay, like there, there's a, a, a little bit of a, a change where I view this as late career? Well, I, I, I had knee troubles where I had surgery in 2011, but I had knee troubles before that. I probably had, my knee started bothering me around 2008. And um, that's why I'm also amazed by how well Rafa has played through knee trouble because mine definitely made me feel like I was a tiny bit slower. I was, it was a tiny bit tougher for me getting out of the corners and pushing off on my right knee. Um, and I tried to do everything I could to get it better, rest, ice, um, you know, treatment, the um, compression sleeves, uh, uh, trying the needles, acupuncture needles, dry needling. I tried cupping. I tried the PRP. I tried everything for that, those two or three years. And I definitely just felt like it was, um, 
it was taking away one of my biggest weapons because I didn't feel like I was, I, I felt like I needed to be that good of a mover to be successful on tour. And with the way my knee was, I felt like I dipped down to being a pretty good mover as opposed to one of the best movers. Um, and that made me feel like it was, it was a struggle. It was tough. And then 2011 is when I, I finally had the surgery because I needed to, I, I my part of my patella tendon had died. So they had to just cut that part out, stitch it back up together. And, um, it felt I do feel like that gave me a couple more years uh, on my career because I couldn't have kept playing the way my knee was, how painful it was, and it started actually just giving out on me. So um, I couldn't have played much longer like that. Uh, and then the surgery gave me some more time, but I still felt like once I came back, every recovery was a little tougher. Every uh, again, I'm amazingly impressed that the the players on tour they're playing late into their 30s because. For me, my recovery was difficult. I felt like I could play great for a match or two, and then I felt like my body wasn't recovering the same, and I wasn't able to. If I was in the quarters of an event, I didn't feel like I had much chance because I didn't feel like my my body had healed and gotten ready to be to be a hundred percent for those matches. So that's where I started making the decision. It's it's probably time that I can't I can't do this anymore because it's not as much fun going into an event thinking you have no chance of winning it because your body won't make it through five matches. So by by the time you retired, you you viewed it as like your body had just given out, sort of. And this was late 2013? Yeah, the U.S. Open 2013 is when I retired. And I, I knew it pretty much that whole year. I knew the U.S. Open was going to be the end for me because, yeah, it was, it was so much that when I trained, I could do a really tough day. And I, I had to train hard to, to be as successful as I was. So really hard training day. The next day I was on the training table for three or four hours and I couldn't, I couldn't get back to neutral just the next day to have another good day. So I thought, okay, well, I need to train that hard to get better. And if I can't train that hard, I'm no longer going to continue improving. I'm only going to be doing my best just to stay where I am. And that's not, that's not a fun situation. It's not a situation where I wanted to, to be in, where I felt like I would go into the tournament just to maybe win one match or two matches instead of, being able to still win titles so um it got to be where I felt like I got as much as I could out of my body I kind of knew that going into my career though that my knees weren't great my shoulder wasn't great my back isn't always great so if I could get if I got 14 years out of that career out of my body I was I was pretty lucky I felt like and um it just it, it wasn't I don't know if my body was meant to be a pro athlete but it, it I did my best to to get everything I could out of it. Now, going into post-retirement, it seems from the outside looking in that you've managed retirement as well as any athlete might hope well, to. So by, you know, in tennis, you always talk about being out there alone. You're out there on your own. But um, when you're giving the speech for uh, yeah, a trophy ceremony, you got to thank your whole team because it was a team behind you. They might be behind the scenes, but I had my coach, Brian Barker, my trainer, Roy Cordial. I had my brother who was always helpful. I had a lot of people that were making my, my success on tour uh, a reality. Once I'm post-career, I've got my family now has been, um, you know, my support. I've got my wife, my two kids. So when I retired, I had one kid and another on the way. And um, it made it so much easier being a part of this wonderful, amazing family with my wife and um, watching her be a mom and learning from her and getting to be the hands-on dad that I've been for the last six years since I've been off tour because um, she did such an amazing job with Riley with my oldest um, while I was still on tour of, of letting me get enough sleep of letting me do my training and everything that once I was off tour and I was so much more involved um, it became 
so much more enjoyable. It's similar to a lot of things in life. What you put in is what you get out. You know, if you put in the time with your kids, you know this, Brandon, you put in the time, you're so rewarded by what you're getting out of it. Um, and so for me, that was, that was the easiest transition because I had the kids to, to keep me busy, to keep me active, to keep me not thinking about tennis or what my previous life was like. And it, it goes from being the most, one of the most selfish careers you could ever have in, in pro sports where you're so focused on everything you do um, to being one of the self, most selfless jobs you'll ever have is being a parent. Uh, you're doing everything. They're not appreciating it when they're two years old. They don't care that you're, you're the one feeding them. You're the one putting them to bed. You're the one reading them stories. And um, you're doing it all for them. And it, it's so much more rewarding. So that's been a great transition for me. And then as I got a little further away from tennis, I realized how much I had learned from tennis and how much I still had to hopefully give to the game, even if it's not physically giving to the game, because I can't play the same way. I can be a tournament director. I can be a commentator. Um, I can be a part, I can help other younger players um, as a mentor at times. So I feel like that um, just opened my eyes to how much of a passion I still have for the game, even though I can't play it the same way I used to. Yeah. And looking at the retirement career, we have, part owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, ESPN commentator, yes. Masters poker play, uh, Masters tennis player, tournament director, Miami Open. And, okay, let's talk a bit about the Miami Open. It's clear, it's clear that you are one of the most respected ex-tennis players that's ever played the game, like among your peers. Like, it's clear that you, you have a... A, a moral authority that comes from just the way that you've carried yourself over a long period of time. And it's clear that you have incredible respect among the players. Um, at the Miami open, um, it seems like a really fun and a really demanding job. You're basically working about a hundred hours a week from what I can gather during the two weeks of the tournament. Um, and you've had a special challenge because your your first year as tournament director was the last year at Key Biscayne. The tournament was forced to move. The location that they came up with was the Miami Dolphin Stadium. Um, it was a tremendous success last year. Uh, very, very popular with everyone in Miami. Big. It became... I don't know if it was planned this way, but it became a big party destination in Miami. There were a lot of bars yeah. and restaurants around and people would go there. I'm sure some people went and didn't even watch tennis. They just ate and drank a lot. So yeah. tell me a bit about, about plans for the Miami Open going forward. Yeah, we're going to continue making improvements, but that was uh, something as soon as we built that sort of plaza around the stadium, we realized there was a good chance and we thought that was a possibility that it would become a bit of a party destination, a, a date spot, a spot to hang out by the bar. You can see some of the tennis, you can walk around, you can watch it on the big screen. And um, that was okay. It's uh, you know, we're, we're happy to create entertainment. And I think that's part of this. I don't know, the generation of um, being able to watch things out of your, uh, with your convenience of being at home on your couch. If you're going to come out and see something, you want to have an experience. So for us, the experience is the great food, the great bars, the music, um, and just the, the atmosphere at the Miami Open is, is something that's pretty unique. And we love it. And so we want to keep improving on that. And we can give 
the players' amenities. You were there this last year. You got to see um, the huge spaces and areas for the players to warm up, the huge areas for their, um, for their dining area. We just didn't have those options to expand in Key Biscayne the way we would have liked to. Um, so the Hard Rock Stadium gives us those kind of opportunities, and we're able to use the amenities there of an NFL stadium where you've got the luxury boxes um, that we can give to the top eight players, men and women. Um, if you're in the top eight, you get your own suite uh, where you can hang out with your team. You can be a little away from the crowd. And um, so we, we love having that ability and we're going to just keep getting it better and better. We're taking in um, plenty of suggestions from the players and we're going to continue to improve it. And yeah, it's uh, it's crazy times for me during those couple of weeks. Uh, my wife jokes that it's the only time I've ever had a real job where I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not accessible. I, I'm usually pretty good at responding to her on the phone and I'll go hours without responding. And she just laughs and thinks, okay, this is great. I, I love the fact that you now have an appreciation for, for a real job. So I definitely do have an appreciation. My wife used to do events and work on events like this. So um, she now laughs at me seeing what she used to go through dealing with events. Well, from the fans perspective, I see it as, as, as likely to evolve into like really a fan favorite event where, if you're a tennis fan, it's easy to get seats on the outer courts because everyone's partying and doing the thing, but it's it's going to draw massive crowds this year because of the all of the incredible common space. Yeah, I hope so. Hope you hope you'll be there. Yeah, I mean, you know that I'll be there. I don't know if you saw I don't know if you saw, but this year I made uh I made ESPN because I accidentally dressed as a ball boy. I saw that in the, the yeah. orange Lacoste shirt. <laughs> <laughs> orange everything, orange orange hat. I have two more topics to cover. I know you have to pick up your daughter imminently. The first is, okay, since you are going to be in Miami, we might have to do a 6060 bet. We, we, might, have, we might have to make that, make that happen. All right. Because I know that you think you're better than Stephen Bassett beating the 6060, but – well, I think I'm better than Stephen Bass at tennis. I don't know if I'm better than Stephen Bass at beating U6060 because he's such a good grinder. He does not miss a ball. So that's, uh, that's a, good, uh, a good sort of game plan for playing and beating someone 6060. We agree. Um, so I also have to throw in a must plug. Everyone should go to www.jamesblaketennis.com. I did this today. Donate to the James Blake Foundation. Very I, I important. Saw that already. Thank early, you very much, Brandon. I appreciate that. You're you're welcome. Early early cancer detection hits close to home. My my dad died of cancer as well. Um. So I want to I want to talk about a difficult period. Two two thousand fifteen. This was a year we were hanging out a lot at the U.S. Open. Quite memorably for me. We got to hang out with Fed while he was on rain delay for the finals. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> That's definitely my, my tennis fan highlight. Um, so soon after that final, in a case of mistaken identity, you're assaulted by a New York City police officer, and it's roughly a 20-minute ordeal. Take us, take us through briefly this experience. Yeah, so I was just standing waiting for a car to take me to the open. I was doing some appearances there, some Q&As, and just, you know, the corporate suite visits. And um, I had just flown in that morning. I took a red eye. I was there. I was going for my first uh, first suite appearance and um, waiting for the car. car was a little late and um, was just texting, I think, and looked up, and I saw someone running directly at me. And 
crazy enough, like I just, in my head, I thought this was someone that might have been a fan. That website you just talked about, James Lake Tennis, someone had written in, I don't uh, monitor it, a friend of mine does it, and he sends me like all the all the pertinent emails and the fan mail and stuff. So someone had written in just the week before from my high school wrestling team. I was also a high school wrestler. And uh, one of the seniors had said, you know, he just wrote in saying, it was when I was a freshman, he was a senior, big guy, used to toss me around, was, you know, joke around with me. And he uh, emailed in saying, hey, just haven't heard from you in years. And I just wanted, to, was just thinking about you and wanted to let you know we're all proud of you and great job and, you know, that kind of stuff. And hopefully we cross paths one day again really nice of him and then I look up and I see another guy I mean his fit his description exactly you know a six foot three shaved head white guy running at me and I just for a split second thought oh my goodness how crazy is that he found me after he just wrote this email to me and and about a split second later I realized this wasn't someone that was coming for a friendly encounter that was joking around with me because he slammed me into the wall and threw me to the ground and had his knee in my back his knee in my back and was putting cuffs on me so um immediately he didn't say nypd he didn't say officer he didn't say anything like that he just uh came and, and threw me on the ground and told me to shut my mouth don't say anything and the, the first thing i said assuming this was a police officer um and seeing what i had seen in the news with uh walter scott alton sterling uh tamir rice every, you know everything that happened with police officers um uh reacting or overreacting at, at situations sometimes i said i'm, I'm complying 100 percent whatever you say and that's a conversation every just about every african-american kid has to have with their with their parents at some point and my dad had had that conversation with me that when a cop tells you to do something you do it and you sort that out later um even if you know you're you did nothing wrong so he picked me up cuffed me and uh walked me over and that was the first time i realized for certain that it was a cop because the uh people who walked me over to four of them were there they had badges on their belt so i knew this was a police operation but had no idea what they what it was for. I, they asked for my ID. I told them to get it out of my pocket. I was cut. My hands were cuffed, so um, they did. And I said, "Look, you made a mistake. Um, I, I don't know what you're looking for, but it's not me. I haven't done anything." And um, they said that they were looking for someone that was committing credit card fraud and had been setting up out of that Hyatt hotel for the last two weeks. I said, "Let's go to my room. I'll show you my plane ticket where I said it just got in this morning. You definitely don't have the right person." um they weren't listening they weren't having that at all and um tried to explain it was pretty frustrating and extremely vulnerable with the fact that they weren't listening to me at all and um were just very dismissive and had me in cuffs and at one point I asked look this is embarrassing I, I, I'd rather we go somewhere else I'm not I'm standing in the middle of 42nd street outside a player hotel a ton of the juniors USDA juniors were uh, were at that hotel I didn't like being seen in cuffs right outside there so they said, no, we're going to stay right here. Didn't really adhere to any of my requests. And um, after about 10 to 15 minutes, uh, one of the last officers on the scene kind of looked at a phone, looked at me, and my only assumption is that he had Googled me or um, somehow run a check or done some pictures. And he said, I think there, there, may, there may be a mistake here. And he's the one that let me go. And the officer that actually did that to me never apologized, never said anything. In fact, the only... Uh, the only thing he offered was that, you know, just so you know, the person we're looking for is still in the area, which had no bearing on me. I didn't care at all. I was still pretty much in shock and um, definitely a little scared and shaken. Um, for as cool and collected as I had been on, on tour, I definitely didn't, uh, didn't have all my wits about me then. I didn't think to get all their badge numbers or to even ask names or anything like that. 
luckily enough, I was able to employ a lawyer right after that, and they were able to get to the bottom of who it was and what happened. And, and really lucky was that there was a, a video. The, it was right outside the Hyatt Hotel, and they had security cameras on the um, on the outside of the of the doors. So there wasn't that that video. I know it would have been my word against five cops, and uh, no matter how innocent a victim seems or how credible they are, that generally doesn't go well. So, um, and they had already said, they put out a, a, a statement saying, after I went to the press, they put out something saying that there was, uh, they were looking into whether there was excessive force. I wasn't in cuffs for more than a minute and they didn't know, my guess is they would have said nothing happened, but then the video, um, then I realized later that there could have been a video. I went and looked at it and um, two days later it was released. So uh, I was lucky that the video was there. Otherwise I have a feeling it would have just been their word against mine. Yeah. And to go way forward from this, and I don't know if you can talk about this this part, but I I can recall that I texted you on a day. I could tell that you were upset about something, but you you never get like outwardly emotional. But I could tell that you were a little bit upset. And then later, I learned that what had happened was that on this day, the the police officer sued you for defamation, which I imagine would be like the, yeah. the greatest possible insult of <laughs> like, like whatever. Yeah. He sued me. He sued the NYPD. He sued the city of New York. He sued the con civilian complaint review board and he sued my book publisher, sued all of us. Um, and they were all thrown out. I mean, it was, um, they were kind of ridiculous hail Mary type uh, situations where he was trying to I'm sure just trying to get money or get something out of it, claiming that I had ruined his life. Uh, meanwhile, this was the fourth or fifth incident of his where he had excessive force and all against African-American males. And uh, one of them, he broke someone's jaw and he was just, you know, he, he and he was claiming that I was ruining his life by telling the story of what happened to me um, and not even outwardly saying it. But somehow he claimed that by me implying that it was race based, that he was racist. And that was enough for him to sue me for defamation, which was definitely ridiculous. And um, for me, it was just uh, even possibly even more frustrating than that, um, because that went nowhere, was that the accountability or lack of accountability was that he was on death duty after that, but he was still collecting a paycheck, still got a raise because they're, they're kind of baked into their contracts that when they hit a certain number of days or weeks or years, they, they get these um, automatic raises. But he only lost five vacation days. Um, and the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which is who tries the case and in my on my behalf, said that they could not ask for a lot more because it would look like it was unfair. It was just giving me special treatment because I was a celebrity. And I said, well, how about the fact that this is a perfect case to set the precedent on with there was video. It couldn't have been more clear that it was a case of excessive force. And I couldn't possibly be victim shamed to being four in the morning outside of a liquor store in a bad area or had a knife on me or have drugs on me or anything. I was standing in golf clothes in the middle of uh, Manhattan outside Grand Central Station at noon. You know, there was nothing I was doing wrong. And I looked at him and was smiling, actually, not even like trying to run or trying to fight or anything. So it was a pretty clear case of negligent behavior by him. And they said, no, they can't do it because of the, the precedent before. And um, unfortunately, to me, it's so frustrating that the precedent before was set when the police officers were policing themselves. And so their punishments are going to be a lot less than probably what they could be um, if, an, if a third party judge was doing it right now. 
and just starting now without that past precedent, they would be much more harsh. And unfortunately, they're just not. So he lost five vacation days for, for this kind of an offense when that to me is a slap in the face because now almost every time there's an officer uh, that kills uh, a civilian, that person has a history, whether it's excessive force or police brutality or something. And to me, they're given the authority to have lethal force, to use lethal force. And some people just aren't cut out for that. They shouldn't do that. There's some people aren't cut out to be pro athletes. Some people aren't cut out to have lethal force. And um, in my opinion, this person shouldn't because he's proven that he he doesn't handle those situations correctly. He doesn't handle he doesn't de-escalate situations. He in fact escalates situations. So to me, that's someone that should be reevaluated and would probably need to train again to see if he belongs on the job. Because in my opinion, there's so many police officers who do a great job. And I've spoken to so many police officers since then that are heroes. And I don't use a hero term for most athletes in general. I don't see that say that often. These are people that go out and risk their life for our safety. And most of them do a great job. It's the few, the 2%, 3%, 4%, whatever, that are doing it the way this officer did that tarnish the fact that now next time I get pulled over, or the next time I have an encounter with a police officer, I may be more scared, which makes their job more difficult. Um, so I think there needs to be more of a, a priority on getting these officers that are doing the job incorrectly and in a dangerous way off the force. All right. Sounds good. Well, we'll wrap it up, man. I appreciate it so much. This was, this was huge. We'll save, we'll save 6060 for a later discussion. Yeah, we'll definitely do this again. It's my pleasure. And sorry we didn't have even more time. This is really interesting. And thanks a lot, Brandon. Hey, thanks so much. I'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.